welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I am joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, May 7th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And we welcome to the podcast this week my KHN colleague, Roshana Pradhan. Hi, Julie. So let us start with the latest on the pandemic, which is either on the downswing, if you listen to the Trump administration, or still expanding pretty much everywhere except the area around New York City, if you listen to pretty much anybody else. We are learning more this week from the inside about how the Trump administration has been handling the crisis. Just breaking literally as we tape, the administration has reportedly shelved a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on how to safely reopen places like daycares, uh, bars and restaurants, and places of worship. Uh, There was a quote in the AP story that said this report is never going to see the light of day, although you can see it if you like. Meanwhile, an unnamed whistleblower explained how a group of 20-something management types were brought in by first son-in-law Jared Kushner to help get the supply chain up and running and didn't quite manage to do that. There were They were also apparently instructed to give priority to friends and acquaintances of the president. I guess that doesn't surprise too many people. Meanwhile, we have an on-the-record whistleblower, Rick Bright, the now former head of BARDA, the agency tasked with developing treatments and vaccines for pandemics. Bright said he was demoted and sent to NIH because he insisted on, quote, safely and scientifically vetted solution to the pandemic rather than pushing things like hydrochloroquine that turned out to do pretty much as much harm as good. And Alice, you had a story this week on more inside machinations. Tell us what you found. So it fits pretty well with the stories you just described. Basically, people inside the administration very bluntly acknowledging the shortcomings of the administration's response to the pandemic, particularly around the supply chain stuff, the getting enough masks, getting enough gloves, hospital gowns was a big one for healthcare workers. And this, we obtained recordings of these government meetings where people were discussing this and discussing the dangers of states moving to reopen quickly before meeting the suggested guidelines of having a decline in cases prior to moving moving ahead, opening up restaurants again, having people go out and go back to work again. And we wanted to show the contrast between what these health and emergency management officials were saying behind the scenes with what the president is saying publicly, which is that everything has been solved. We've solved all of the shortages. We are safe to reopen. We want states to reopen quickly. Apparently, the the president, like... uh publicly shushed a nurse uh, yesterday who was at the White House talking about how they still didn't quite have all the stuff that they needed. Yes. Yeah, that was really striking. Um, It was, you know, he brought nurses into the White House ostensibly to honor them. And when one tried to raise that there were still shortages of protective equipment in her in her uh, care setting, he was like, that's not happening Um, or saying, you know, oh, that might be happening to you, but we've solved it everywhere else. 
And she was even careful to like say that to make that point like this is, you know, happening here and I don't know everything everywhere else and he still, you know, had to jump on jump on her for saying something. More broadly, what does this tell us about, you know, the how the administration inside is handling this pandemic? Are they getting any better at, you know, sort of uh, getting a handle on this or are we really at the point where they're just saying we're not going to do this, we're going to leave the states to do this? Well, I can chime in on that. I mean, I think we've seen um, mixed messaging, to put it mildly, like basically for the last several weeks. Um, even we can get into this more, but, you know, the fate of the White House Coronavirus Task Force has been up in the air this week. And I think so the administration is both trying to say it, now I, you can see the argument if you want to show that, you know, we're really putting the states in charge and hey, guys, you're on your own, do your thing. Why, why do you need a task force in the White House if they're not responsible for coordinating and doing all this stuff? On the other hand, um, but now the president says that the, the task force is going to live on in, in some form. And so I think uh, who's ultimately responsible? I mean, even there, like the messaging is, is very inconsistent, let alone on, you know, how far we've progressed during this pandemic. I think um, one of the biggest things uh, that continues to exist, I mean, when I talk to people about, you know, what is the top of mind concern at the moment, they still say it's testing. Testing is still a big problem, and we still don't really have a good sense of disease prevalence in the U.S. And, you know, almost certainly, even though the president says otherwise, we are undercounting the number of people who are infected and likely deaths also. So, um Testing, and I think uh, as we talked about, you know, uh, personal protective equipment shortages are still very, very real for medical workers all around the country. You're seeing states even, you know, kind of band together um, to try and form some sort of leadership on this um, because the, you know, the federal government hasn't been doing it in a lot of aspects. And obviously, um, a lot of people have talked about the fact that this virus doesn't stay within state lines. So, you know, here in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area, you know, if Virginia is thinking of reopening um, before Maryland and D.C., that's going to probably affect Maryland and D.C. Um, and so, I think you're seeing states trying to trying to coordinate their efforts, um, given the fact that the federal government is is not. I, I saw a, there was a sort of remarkable video that I saw yesterday that Lori Garrett posted, a prominent science writer, uh, about how workers at a meatpacking plant in Iowa it tracked their cell phones, not individually, but you know as a group, to see where they went. And I think it was over the course of a month they went to practically people who had been in that plant went to practically the entire United States. It was amazing to see you know people people move around, and what you do in one state doesn't you know necessarily stay in that state. There have been a lot of closed borders, you know, international borders, but we've so far at least not closed the borders between states. Um, So it's not, it doesn't, it it sort of cries out for a federal solution. Alice, you were going to add something. Oh, just on the task force. It's, it's, wild that in just the last couple days alone, we've heard that it's winding down and it's not needed anymore, that it's very popular. So they're going to keep it and they're going to add members to it, but they aren't saying who. And <laughs> um, and then what the actual focus of it is, is also not clear going forward. Is it going to be just a reopening task force um, at the same time that they're getting rid of these guidelines for reopening. It's, it's completely all over the place. It's very understandable that states don't have a clear message on what they should be doing. Well, I'm going to add one more topic to this whole mix. Um, 
One of the things we know about working in this particular administration is that if you say the wrong thing, you can quickly find yourself out of a job. Um, the latest example is Acting Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Christy Grimm, uh, who, as we discussed here a few weeks ago, had the temerity to do her job and released a survey of hospitals that suggested they still weren't getting important things they needed, like personal protective gear and testing supplies. Trump tried to pin her as an Obama appointee, but in fact, she's a career official who served not just in the Obama administration, but all eight years of the George W. Bush administration. We should point out that she did not actually get fired or even technically demoted because civil servant, but rather Trump's ire with her got him to finally nominate a new inspector general for a post that's been vacant for almost a year. Uh, A lot has been written about how this administration's been hampered by Trump's not filling posts that need Senate confirmation. He keeps saying he likes acting people. But I'm wondering if in some cases the administration might be functioning better better with career rather than political people in charge, that career people may not be quite as afraid of losing their job as political appointees. Um, is, that, is that a possibility here? Well, I think you saw um, Anthony Fauci obviously um, rise to the top of uh, all of the the people on the task force speaking about this and kind of become a star and he's a career official. Um, and I think that that helped him feel maybe a little, I, I don't know this, I haven't asked him this for sure, but to feel a little bit more secure in, in saying things that um, contradicted the president. And even he was very careful when he did that, but certainly he's um, he's come out and done that. So I think it um, it makes a huge difference when it's not the president who gave you your job when um, you think that you might have some some thoughts that contradict what he's been saying. Yeah, I, I just I mean, it does make me wonder if the you know, the the non the non political people can have even though they're sort of easier to kind of squash, if you will, you know, uh, I know there was some complaints in the, the story about the whistleblowers about Jared Kushner's, um, you know, bringing in outsiders to sort of do work that, that did not that that sort of uh, supplanted what a lot of more experienced career people were doing. Um, at least those career people are still there. Yeah, I think one of the things we saw in that um, complaint from Rick Bright is um, a little bit on this hydroxychloroquine saga um, had to do with the fact that he opposed sort of a very broad distribution of these drugs to the country and um, wasn't sure how to, to stop what was going on, um, that, it, that it was going to be out there widely. And so talked to um, Janet Woodcock at the FDA, who is the director of their drug center. And she's a career official. She's been there uh, since the 80s. Um, so she gave him the idea that they could do this very limited emergency use authorization, which they've been criticized for, um, for that even going too far. But it was an effort to limit the distribution of this drug um, and to be used on COVID-19 patients. And you know, she's certainly a, a career official as well. So we we already talked about the you know um, the the fate of the the task force whether you know it was going to go away um, because it was being criticized and then they criticized making it go away so it's now going to go not going to go away now but there is always there's this sort of wait five minutes and the administration will change its mind feeling of how this you know pandemic is being handled um, which has some real world consequences Anna you you wrote a story about some of the wild swings that had to do with hydroxychloroquine tell tell us what you found. Yeah, um, well, President Trump has touted 
this drug in the past. Um, it's starting around mid-March um, through, you know, a little bit, a few weeks later in April, he was talking about it at these daily prep press beef briefings um, constantly saying he had a good feeling about it and that people should be using it um, against COVID. And then, you know, um, it came out that there are some heart risks associated with this. And there was um, an analysis done of patients um, at the VA hospitals that saw um, actually people who took it were more likely to um, die than those who didn't, who had COVID-19. Um, it, it's an analysis, so it doesn't mean that that is definitely the case. There are um, clinical trials going on to look at that question um, for sure, but it made a lot of people back off of hydroxychloroquine, um, including you know hospitals that had been using it as part of their treatment protocols, um, and the prescriptions went way down. So when Trump first mentioned this drug, they shot up. Um, they doubled essentially of the number of prescriptions that were already out there for people who needed this drug for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but you know, fast forward a couple of weeks later, and they're down to almost those normal levels. Um, and Trump has stopped talking about it. So you know, it was sort of a uh, a, a star um, of, that he he wanted to promote, but. Um, it had it had real consequences in the sense that it can harm people, and so it's not just saying something from the podium that doesn't have an effect. I mean, everyone said the president's talking about this drug. I want to have it, and you know, doctors told me that um, that we're doing clinical trials. They said I can't find anyone who's not already taking it because they insist on having it. And it it had real world consequences for people who were already taking it and suddenly couldn't get it, right? I mean, right, for people yeah. for whom it's actually been shown to be of benefit. In particular, patients with lupus, right? There, there were some uh, issues for shortages. So. Right, right. There were shortages. Um, they weren't able to find the drug. And, you know, they've been taking this for years. It's been approved for lupus for a really long time. Um, thankfully, the Lupus Foundation of America did tell me that they are seeing fewer calls just in the last um, few days for people who are having trouble finding their medication. So the prescriptions going down are easing the, the problem that people with uh, with lupus have had finding this. Um, I will say the president hasn't stopped completely touting this. Uh, as recently as Sunday at that town hall he did at the Lincoln Memorial, he returned to hyping hydroxychloroquine and said that the studies showing its dangers are basically cooked up by his political rivals to make him look bad and that they don't want this drug to work because they don't want people to get better because that would reflect well on Trump. So I, I will say <laughs> he's talking about it less for sure and definitely less at the briefings, but it is not gone from his repertoire. Meanwhile, Congress is back, or at least the Senate is back this week um, because there are judges to be approved. Seriously, um, that's why Mitch McConnell brought them back. Um, most senators, as I've sort of watched on TV, I have not been up there, uh, they seem to be wearing masks and socially distancing, but not Rand Paul, who is the one senator who we know has tested positive for the virus. Um, what is his deal? What's his explanation about this? Rand Paul, uh, who is a doctor, we should note, claims that because he has had coronavirus and has recovered that he is immune. That is not known at this point. Uh, the World Health Organization and many other expert bodies have said that we do not yet know if people become immune after they've had it, how long that immunity lasts, what 
happens with transmission to others. There's just a lot we don't know. So Rand Paul is walking around without a mask, making claims that are not backed up at this point. Dr. Rand Paul. The one thing I would say about immunity, too, is I think there was um, there's been reporting this week showing that. So even if we um, which, again, obviously, we don't know whether uh, immunity can be developed against this virus, but um, the strain is already mutated. Right. We found that the earlier uh, virus that appeared or that was uh, prevalent in Wuhan um, it has since mutated and the more contagious version has, you know, potentially more dangerous version is the one that's sort of spreading in the United States. And so there's nothing saying that that won't happen again. So, um, yeah, we, we, you know, I think immunity is a, a big, big assumption to be making at this point um, and potentially even way down the road. Yeah, although I, I should say I've seen some some stories from some public health people throwing a little bit of cold water on the mutation theory and whether that actually is makes it any different. But the but the fact is, we don't know. We assume there's some immunity once you've recovered, but we don't know yet um, how much it is or how protective it is. And you would think that Rand Paul with an MD might know that, but apparently if he does, he doesn't think it matters. All right, well, the House is not back yet at the recommendation of the Capitol Physician's Office, who worries about 435 people milling around too close together. But work is starting on the next round of coronavirus relief. Um, what we're hearing is Republicans very much want employers to have liability protection. So if they bring workers back and they get sick, they can't sue. Democrats want more guarantees of health coverage. Um, there's been talk about paying for COBRA continuation for people who presumably will have jobs to go back to and whose jobs are still there and offering health insurance, um, or perhaps uh, Democrats calling for uh, an open enrollment in period for the marketplaces. Um, any inklings yet? What else is on the possible agenda for this next round of uh, COVID-19 relief? Well, there's a lot of push from Democrats for more funding for state and local uh, governments who are really hit hard right now and are struggling with the Trump administration putting the burden for testing and contact tracing back on states, trying to ramp that up, hire enough staff to do that. They'll need that staff later if and when there's a vaccine to <laughs> vaccinate people as well. And so those same governments are right now struggling with drastically reduced tax revenues, et cetera. And so um, there's a lot of discussion there, although it's, of course, like everything become really politicized. And um, a lot of Republican leaders and the president have said they don't want to bail out essentially Democratic run states and have implied that only blue states are struggling right now, which is, of course, not the case. <laughs> so that could be a big fight going forward. There's been a good amount of discussion also about Medicaid funding, somewhat related. So, you know, we're seeing um, obviously when you have tens of millions of people who are losing their job based uh, coverage, uh, especially workers. And then I guess on the flip side of that, these people maybe didn't have uh, employer-based insurance, but people who work in retail, hospitality, you know, those sectors that um, tend to uh, don't always provide uh, employer-sponsored coverage to their workers, but uh, those people are often Medicaid eligible. So these people are enrolling. Um, I think we're expected to see spikes in enrollment, but on the flip side, you have states who are seeing their tax revenues plummet are having to make some, uh, you know, choices about what to uh, reduce as far as revenue goes. Uh, and Medicaid, of course, is a very large line item in every state's budget. So we're seeing a few states, uh, I think in Ohio, Georgia, like they're starting to propose some reductions in funding. 
um, of course. Uh, and and at a time Georgia, more people Georgia hasn't even expanded Medicaid. Georgia, uh, right. That's so. That's just its existing program. Right. So, um, so that uh, you know that that's bound to cause some alarm, I think, from people because the you know the safety net is something you usually want there, especially during a pandemic. Um, and the uh, states are having to make some some difficult calculations, I think. So again, uh, kind of what Alice said, I think uh, the amount of Medicaid funding or increases in FMAP or the share of federal funding that goes to each state to pay for health coverage, um, you know, is under debate. And I think there are conservatives who don't want to see, um, you know, federal spending go up on that. So uh, I think that'll definitely be a discussion point around the next several weeks. And uh, of course, and the whole thing could get blown up by a giant abortion fight. Uh, That was that was my very next question for the for the first time in this whole sort of, you know, COVID relief uh, saga. We're seeing abortion rise as a potential sticking point. Um, why now? Is it just that Republicans don't want to give Democrats anything unless they can put abortion into it? Well, it's a continuation of an argument Republicans have been making for a little bit, which is that any federal subsidy for health insurance overall, if in some states that has any chance of potentially going to a plan that also covers abortion, that they believe that that's federal money going directly to abortion and that they believe should be banned. And so they want, now that lawmakers are talking about potentially subsidizing some sort of COBRA program for people who lose their jobs and would have to, you know, extend their old health insurance, but would struggle to pay the full premiums. They say any sort of federal aid in that direction needs to include a ban on money going to abortion, which would, of course, more impact the states where that's required for all plans, California, New York and others. And and we should say this is I mean, this is part of an effort it actually goes back a really long way, this effort to uh, have um, private insurance stop offering abortion as a covered service, which until the Affordable Care Act, a lot of plans did. Um, and there was, you know, there were there were efforts, there were congressional efforts back in the 90s to not let employers to have tax deductibility for insurance, which is, of course, the foundation of the entire employer insurance program, but not let them deduct their uh uh, employer, the, the cost for employer provided insurance if they covered abortion. Uh, no, that, so that was sort of the early efforts to to get abortion to not be covered under private insurance. And this is just yet another continuation of it. We will see sort of, you know, how the imperative of actually doing something uh, about COVID relief, you know, flies in the face of of, uh, of their desire to to further restrict abortion and sort of who's going to going to give on this. Well, there was some non-COVID news this week, mostly at the Supreme Court. The court heard oral arguments by telephone and and broadcast live, which was kind of cool. Um, yesterday, they heard a case involving the birth control benefits required under the Affordable Care Act. And if this sounds familiar, that's because it is. The, the court heard a bunch of cases on the same subject back in 2016, when there were only eight members because Justice Scalia had died but hadn't yet been replaced. Thank you, Mitch McConnell. Uh, and basically, that case came out in a tie. There was an unsigned opinion that sent it back to lower courts and said, it looks like you can work this out, so please work it out. Um, but they didn't. So, Alice, why was this back in court now? 
So, yes, basically the court before said, you know, talk amongst yourselves and come up with a solution. And spoiler alert, they did not. They were not able to. So here we are again. Um, Although but, now we're now we're at the opposite because before yes. it was the religious entities who wanted to not provide birth control, the universities and Catholic hospitals and and whatnot, and they were suing the Obama administration. But now the Trump administration has said okay, and the states are suing, right? Right. So. This is the third time this issue has come before the court, but it's the first time that the federal government is on the side of the religious groups who don't want to provide birth control. And it's also the first time, obviously, with Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the court. And so different court makeup, potentially different outcome than than the previous times. What's under discussion now, unlike before, is that the Trump administration is has vastly expanded the type of business that can get an exemption and can say, we don't want to provide birth control for our employees before. So first it was like just churches and houses of worship. Then it was religious nonprofits. Then after Hobby Lobby, it was it could be for profits as long as they were closely held and had a sincere religious belief. And now it's basically anybody for profit, nonprofit, big, small. And it doesn't have to be a religious belief against birth control. It could just be sort of a moral objection to it. So that's what's under discussion now. And yeah, it, it could go a lot of ways that could hinge on standing. There were arguments about whether the nuns who brought the challenge have standing or whether they're already exempt and don't need to do this opt-out process that they oppose. There's There were arguments about whether the states have standing to defend the birth control provision and or to yeah. challenge i guess the states are the ones that are challenging the trump right. administration right but defending yeah. the original provision yeah under the affordable care act to allow this benefit so yes um a ruling on this in the middle of the summer just a few months before the election could be really big this this is something that will impact tens of thousands of people across the country and, and we should point out that uh, Justice Ginsburg participated from her hospital bed at Johns Hopkins, where she was being treated for gallstones um, at age 87. So, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if sort of her continuing fragile health, uh, she was she was pretty, you know, she was herself. She she kept saying, you know, if you if you uphold this rule, um, that's exactly what Congress Congress basically wanted women to get you know, no upfront cost birth control. And you're saying that basically any employer who wants to cannot provide that. That's not what Congress called for. Um, she was she was her, her usual sort of feisty self. But I'm wondering what people are going to think. I'm she's the chances of her being on the winning side of this seem pretty slim. Um, I'm wondering whether that's going to have sort of a political impact uh, at some point when people see these cases actually start to come down. We've obviously got another abortion case that we're going to that we're waiting to hear this year out of Louisiana that might might have an impact on what people think about the fall, what people think about sort of what the Supreme Court is going to be doing. Part of me also wonders whether, I mean, I guess the justices were on a, a conference call, you said, right, hearing arguments and how much eye rolling are they have they been doing, you know, because <laughs> they can get away with it on the phone now because, you know, how many times do they have to consider this, not just the ACA, but this particular requirement. So maybe by the time we get to the Texas, you know, case that they're, they're going to be uh, palpably annoyed that they have to keep going back to this, you know. <laughs> A law that well, is now 10 years old. 
I am glad that you brought that up because that was the other news this week. Um, it was the first deadline uh, for briefs in the big uh, the Texas case, the case that could actually uh, bring down the entire Affordable Care Act again. Um, and it looked for, I don't know, maybe a minute like the Trump administration might change its position from advocating for the entire law to be overturned to advocating for just the popular parts, the pre-existing condition parts to be overturned. President Trump put the kibosh on that on Wednesday, at least, so so we think, um, saying that no, he wants to, he still thinks the whole law should be overturned and he's going to come up with something better. But seriously, how much difference would it make politically? This is a this is a case that's probably going to be heard before the election, but certainly not decided before the election. So politically, if the administration is agitating for the entire law to come down or just the most popular part of the law to come down, would that have any kind of a real substantive difference in terms of it as an election issue? I think so, because, well, I mean, Democrats are obviously going to hammer it hard either way, but I think... I've seen a lot of commentary about other parts of the ACA besides pre-existing conditions that people are flagging. You know, I've seen people tweeting about, you know, my 20-year-old kid would be screwed because of that provision, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, you know, this birth control provision we could point to as well. So I, I have seen people pointing to other parts of the Affordable Care Act and the implications of those go away in addition to the pre-existing conditions protections. And a giant public health fund that would also go away. Um, so, I think so I guess- if the 2017 repeal effort is any guide, I mean, you know, pre-existing conditions or the uh, elimination or at least neutering of, of that, you know, benefit was really important in the House when House Republicans were trying to um, develop their repeal bill and was initially why, you know, it, they were unsuccessful before they came back again and voted to successfully repeal the law. Um, but as as Alice noted, I mean, uh, in the Senate, it wasn't as much about pre-existing conditions as it was about rolling back um, Medicaid expansion and a bunch of states that expanded coverage. So I think really anytime you're taking away any benefit that is already there, whether it's covering certain things under your plan or um, just outright rolling back benefits that people have now had for multiple years, you're going to be in political danger. So really, it's it's yeah, I think any any sort of rollback is going to be politically powerful as a message, you know, for the election. I just think that also it's it's really the uncertainty. Um, obviously, if people knew benefits were going to be taken away, that would be politically damaging as well. But I think it's the uncertainty. And like you said, not knowing what the Supreme Court's going to do after the election and having that hanging over people as a cloud going into the election, knowing that the Trump administration is pushing for this, I think will will have consequences. I think it is analogous to 2018, where the uncertainty of what Republicans in Congress would be able to do with the Affordable Care Act and knowing that they wanted to repeal it really motivated people in the election. And I would say, Anna, one of the big things that the Trump administration was hoping to have going into this election was something about drug prices. But that seems unlikely at this point, since the House can't even figure out how to vote remotely. Right. Well, and, you know, even if they could vote, I mean, there's just been no consensus on on really how to do this, particularly kind of between the House and the Senate on, you know, how you could actually get at this. It seems to be something that's sort of 
fallen by the wayside and and maybe I don't know maybe happily so for some of the lawmakers who haven't been able to to figure this out um, because they made so many promises before um, that they were going to do this. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week uh, that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Alice, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So I have a piece from the Arizona Republic by Rachel Leingang, which is about the state's health department telling a university that's been producing modeling around the outbreak and the impact of the state reopening at different times, telling them to stop doing that work. And um, this is after one of their models showed that the state's move to reopen now is will lead to a spike in cases. And in their modeling that they were doing previously, they found that, you know, only open waiting until the end of May to reopen would prevent such a rise because that would enable them to get it under control. So I think you're seeing this in other places as well. Also with the leaks recently to <laughs> myself and other reporters about um, internal models, the Trump administration folks have produced as well, showing the consequences of states reopening too quickly. I think when there are moves to suppress some of this news, that, you know, really is telling. Yay, academic freedom. <laughs> Anna? Mine is from Reuters. So this um, was the, the article that actually kind of prompted uh, the dismissal of Rick Bright at BARDA. Um, it's by Catherine Eban. It's Bayer's chloroquine donation to U.S. raises concern about FDA standards and pandemic. Um, so I thought people might want to kind of see the origin of that and what it um, what it talks about is that the chloroquine that was donated to the strategic national stockpile was made in India and Pakistan in um, factories that the FDA had not inspected. Um, this was part of Rick Bright's concern um, and and essentially shows emails where um, some in the Trump administration did not seem to care about that at all and um, wanted a political win and a photo opportunity. And that was the biggest concern. Awesome. Russian up. <laughs> So the my story uh, is one that was in ProPublica uh, this week um, by David McSwain, and essentially it documents a dizzying, and I'll be blunt about it, pretty just outright crazy effort where he tagged along, uh, along with a federal contractor who had uh, basically no experience in procuring uh, medical supplies and protective equipment, and his dizzying journey uh, to secure six million masks to give to the VA. Um, and it is just absolutely crazy. It includes uh, journeys on private jets and traveling all over the country. And uh, this contractor is saying that he was basically, you know, bamboozled by, um, I think he says pirates and buccaneers is one of the things, but basically, you know, middlemen and brokers. Um, and it's just, it's a really wild read. So I, I very much enjoyed it. It's a fantastic piece of reporting. 
Great. Well, mine is an oldie, but I want to highlight it again in case you missed it. It's by my KHN cubicle mate, who I miss a lot since we're now socially distanced, Jay Hancock and Liz Lucas, and it's called UVA Has Ruined Us. Health System Sues Thousands of Patients, Seizing Paychecks, and Claiming Homes. And while it's from last fall, the reason I'm highlighting it is that this week we learned it was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Investigative Reporting, which is so exciting. And so much work went into this. So even if you read it last fall, it's worth reading it again. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay, even if we're all in different places. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Anna Edney. At Rachna Dixit. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.